The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And this week, I've tapped my ruby slippered toes together because there's no place like home when you're a cardiology reg than discussing one of my favorite topics, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And even better, when you're discussing it with an esteemed expert like today's guest. More on that in a moment. But as always, I have to say a huge thank you to those of you who continue to support the show over on our Buy Me A Coffee page, including recent donations from Alison Goland, or Gowland, Mohamed Mahadi, and Keithik Shatria. Your kindness does not go unnoticed, and the least I can do is give you a brief shout-out in the podcast intro. I love you guys, I love making this podcast, and I love it even more when I know it's making a difference to all you wonderful listeners. Anyway, I'll stop getting sentimental and crack on with this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. Today's episode, we're taking a look at a cardiology station which has, on occasion, made candidates' hearts beat out of their chest. It's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Joining us for today's episode, we have Dr. Omar Asgar. Omar has done the majority of his medical training in Manchester and has recently CCT'd in cardiology with a subspecialization in inherited cardiac conditions, cardiac MRI, and devices. Since then, he's been living la vida locum, living his best life, and so he's been kind enough to charge me just the £200 an hour for his company this evening. So, Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you. You, you missed the added VAT on that rate as well. <laughs> Friends and family rate. Oh, not more. <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And not only will Omar be tackling uh, or helping us tackle hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as it might come up in paces but he will also be tackling his quiz the consultant topic this is a quiz where our bosses take on a quick fire quiz on a topic of their own choosing with a caveat it can't be to do with medicine so omar what have you named as your specialist subject uh, liverpool football club very topical fantastic so we'll be getting into that a little bit later on in the show but without further ado let's get started on this episode looking at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. (laughs) 
So before we get started on the exam side of things, let's start with the absolute basics. So what exactly is HCM? So um, I think it's, I always like to give things historical context, just not only for nostalgic purposes, but it also it really gives some context into the conditions that we treat, how they came about. And I think some of the earliest descriptions of um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or certainly the obstructive variant of it, date back to the 19th century and, and, and records um, from France. And then the next real uh, kind of discovery was made in um, patients or rather autopsy samples in London, I think in the 50s and 60s, in young patients who presented with sudden death. And in these autopsy samples, they, they were, these patients were found to have really um, hypertrophied septums in particular. That led on to some further studies by the uh, uh, world-renowned Eugene Bromwald and his group in the 60s uh, in, in patients, again, a series of about 64 or 65 patients with what they initially termed as subaortic uh, stenosis. Uh, and, and this then led on to all the studies that described this condition in more detail. If you fast forward another 20 years or so with the advent of ultrasound in, in cardiac diagnostics and, uh, and genetics as well, and the, the kind of uh, real push in genomic medicine and the discoveries in genomic medicine in the 80s, uh, we then started to understand the genetic basis of this condition in its purest form. The old term for it used to be hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or HOCAM, uh, as we often refer to it as. And, and as you correctly say, it's now been superseded by the term hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which encompasses all forms of the disease and all kind of phenotypes of the disease. Um, and and, and there, are, there are different variants of the condition, which we, we can talk about later. So, um, so yeah, I think um, very interesting condition, was thought to be very rare initially, and now is less rare. It's certainly the most common genetically inherited cardiovascular condition that we know with a prevalence of between 1 in 200 and 1 in 500 but obviously a very important condition because it causes sudden death in young patients. And that can often be the first presentation of a patient. Yeah, fantastic. And just going into a bit more detail on that. So we mentioned hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and then also HOCAM or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And so what is the key difference between those two? Because I think it's something which a lot of people use interchangeably when actually as cardiologists it's not, is it? It's not interchangeable, really. They do have different connotations. Exactly. And um, uh, so the obstructive form uh, is where there is obstruction of the flow of blood out of the left ventricle. So characteristically in the LVOT, in the left ventricular outflow tract. Uh, and, and that gives rise to obstruction to varying degrees, and which also gives rise to symptoms. That tends to have a more aggressive and more malignant uh, that's a more malignant form of the disease compared to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy without uh, left ventricular tract obstruction and where there is obstruction it tends to be more challenging in terms of how we manage it and what treatment options there are so what we do know now after you know with the advent of CMR imaging in particular which is, is, is given us great insights into the condition its natural history and also the varying uh, phenotypes or, or forms of the condition you can have your typical classical um, hokum, if you like, which is hyper asymmetric hypertrophy of the interventricular septum, in particular the basal antraceptum. 
uh, which characteristically causes the LV outflow tract obstruction. The other forms we see is midventricular obstruction. We see concentric HCM. We see apical HCM. So, so there are different forms of this condition, and you can see, you know, asymmetric septal hypertrophy without LV outflow tract obstruction. So, obstruction is a key issue here as far as um, disease prognosis is concerned, certainly. And you mentioned there about genetics as well. And so it's important to mention that whilst HCM as an umbrella term can encompass or cardiac hypertrophy of varying causes, when we talk about genetic HCM, that's a, a different entity and is a hereditary condition, isn't it? Yeah. And again, it, it's an important point you highlight in that um, what we term genotype positive or genotype negative patients. So for example, in all of the large series of patients with a classical HCM phenotype who've undergone genetic testing, you'll find that somewhere between 20 and 30% of these patients will be genotype positive, i.e. they have been found to carry a recognized mutation in one of the sarcomeric uh, genes. So the vast majority of patients are in fact genotype negative. And these are a heterogeneous group as well. And it's still really a, a field of discovery and research that we, we don't quite know uh, a great deal about. But I imagine as, as our discoveries in the field of genomics, for sure, and, and generally within cardiovascular medicine, we may find out a little bit about, uh, about these conditions. So, so genotype's important. In some cases, it does confer an adverse prognosis, depending on, on, on the uh, mutation in question. But it certainly allows us then to screen family members. And the other important point about um, uh, about the genetics of HCM is genotype positive, phenotype negative patients um, can still have cardiac events. So it's well recognized, certainly in, in some of the studies or case studies from the US of collegiate students who've, who've died during a basketball game suddenly or whatever, have not necessarily had you know, huge obstruction or even, you know, significant hypertrophy, but have been genotype positive on perhaps on molecular autopsy thereafter. So genotype status is very important. And and this is a condition that, um, you know, has variable penetrance. Yeah, brilliant. So we're going, that's quite a lot of detail for our audience. So I'm just going to headline it for those of us who aren't super interested in hokum like uh, myself and omar so the important headlines are it's an autosomal dominantly inherited condition that's the most common form and as omar said approximate prevalence of one in 200 to one in 500 and the genes whilst there are there are many and as omar says it's a evolving field the genes of interest or the most common genes are the myh7 gene which codes for the beta myosin heavy chain and the MYBPC3 gene, cardiomyosin binding protein C. Again, this is super detailed. Probably don't need to uh, memorize this bit in particular, but it will make you stand out from the bog standard candidate if this is the sort of stuff that comes up on the day. And so, Omar, if we lean in towards a more exam-focused scenario of a patient with possible HCM in, in a PACES-style scenario... I think the first thing which the candidates may find on entering the station is one thing which a lot of candidates are terrified of in paces, which is a young cardiology patient, because it's not common to have cardiac problems when you're young. And so, Omar, the younger patient in a cardiology station, what sort of other conditions might the candidates find in paces where the patient could be 
younger than your bog standard cardiology patient? So the classical one is going to be somebody with congenital heart disease. Uh, and that is a huge spectrum of disorders that you may see. And my experience, and I have selected candidates for PACES exams in the past, have rather meanly uh, selected the most difficult ones when I was asked <laughs> to do that. But um, that just goes to, to prove that uh, you can literally see anything. So um, I think a young patient, you should think of a normal patient, for example, somebody with no clinical signs necessarily, anyone with an inherited uh, cardiomyopathy or uh, channelopathy even who may not, not exhibit any um, clinical signs, any of the cardiomyopathies, including HCM, and, and I would say most commonly adult congenital heart disease because that's still more common and more prevalent now uh, than things like uh, uh, you know phenotypically severe HCM in a young patient. Yeah, brilliant. And so... In an exam style scenario, another thing to think about is the vignette. So the presenting symptom, which is often very short, but the candidates will get some information from that. And one thing we really wanted to flag to our listeners is if you see a young patient and the presenting symptom is something like uh, syncope or blackouts, something like hokum or a channelopathy or an inherited cardiac condition should be high up on your list. And we'll go into some of the other signs, but just thinking other reasons why a young patient might collapse things like wolf parkinson white long qt syndromes brugada all may show a young patient and i guess the important thing here is that those conditions probably have less physical signs than a patient with hokum and that's why we're focusing on that today so if we start our examination in the usual way We'll work through our cardiovascular examination as the candidates would go through it. So, Omar, we've already touched on it a little bit, but from the end of the bed, we'd expect to see a younger patient than normal. Is there anything else that the candidates should take note of from the end of the bed or should be looking out for from the end of the bed? Well, if the patient's clothed, you may not see it, but if the patient's not clothed, you might be looking for a scar on the chest, thoracotomy scar, stenotomy scar, that might give clues to, to any previous cardiac in intervention, for example. Um, in particular case of Holcomb, this might be a patient who's had a previous surgical myectomy. Um, you might be looking for any signs that this patient has a, an implantable device, whether that be a pacemaker or a, a, an ICD, and that could be in the conventional position uh, of the anterior left side of the chest or more recently, uh, we're, we're starting to use subcutaneous ICDs now in, in uh, or SICDs in these younger patients who don't have a pacing indication. And you would then see the device uh, just under the left axilla. So um, those are the kind of things you might be looking for in a patient with, with HCM. One thing we touched on earlier, but, and we'll touch on again later, in terms of differential diagnosis, it's important to consider that even in a patient with signs of HCM, this may not be sarcomeric HCM. This could be what we term a phenocopy or another condition that can give you left ventricular hypertrophy. And there are plenty of those, which we'll, we'll talk about later. So you may get other signs, clinical signs appropriate to those conditions, uh, which may be multi-system disorders, for example. And then moving on to the hands, as usually the first part of the cardiology examination, what I found in my research for the episode is that the textbooks or a lot of other resources say the pulse is typically described as jerky in nature. 
I've got to be honest. I don't think I've ever taken the pulse of someone with uh, with a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and felt it to be particularly jerky. And I don't know how you would diagnose a pulse as being jerky. So I was just wondering, Omar, have you ever felt anything like that, a clinical sign of, uh, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? No, like you, I think these terms tend to be limited to textbooks and particularly PACES type textbooks because classically these patients with a severe phenotype, you know, may have been selected for exams. Nowadays, it's unlikely to find a patient these kind of signs, and in particular, a jerky pulse. I'm not quite sure what that, like you, I'm not quite sure how that would, would feel. The description's a bit vague, isn't it, in terms of a jerky pulse? But I guess the, the underlying issue that they a jerky pulse would represent is um, is a, a forceful kind of uh, uh, left ventricular contraction, which may be felt uh, as some varying intensity in, in, the, in the radial pulse. Great. And then the other thing in the hands, you're obviously going to feel, uh, feel the pulse. Um, I don't think particularly there's a huge amount to, to take note of uh, in terms of the pulse. One thing which I did come across is that um, sometimes these patients have an increased uh, prevalence of AF as well, often due to uh, left atrial dilatation as a result of uh, having uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. But that's pretty much all I came across uh, in terms of rhythm disturbance. Omar, anything to add on that? Not really. Um, AF being the commonest, uh, and the second commonest may be ectopic beats that you feel as an irregular pulse. Great. And so moving on from there, um, you know, I couldn't find a single sign in the arms that candidates would have to take note of. So the importance of that is you're just going to skip through this part of the examination nice and swiftly, moving on to uh, the face and neck. Again, this may well be a, a textbook uh, sign, Omar, but one thing which I found was the noting of large A waves in the JVP uh, due to atrial contraction. Again, I think it's probably a soft sign and not going to win you the station, but maybe something to look out for. Yeah, agree. Um, bonus points for that, especially if if, if you're able to find a, a patient with, with such clinical signs. And it, and it represents... Um, forceful atrial contraction against a, a non-compliant right ventricle in the setting of significant uh, septal hypertrophy. Listeners, this is, as I said, it's probably unlikely that you'll see these signs, but one killer examiner may well just say, what other signs would you expect to see that you didn't see in this patient? And so that sort of sign might be something that you mention if you get a horrible examiner who gives you a question like that. So you're going to move on from the face and neck very swiftly, and this is where you're going to get your money. It's going to be the chest, the, the cardiovascular examination of the chest. And so first element of that examination is inspection. So, Omar, we, we talked about it at the start of the examination, but if you could just talk a bit more about, about what, you, what candidates should be looking for when they formally inspect the chest. As you would with any cardiovascular case, you would be looking for uh, any signs of, of previous surgery, for example, have they had a previous stenotomy? Is there a thoracotomy scar? Um, again, look in the left anterior chest wall for a, if they've had any previous scars from device implantation or if you can actually see a device. Again, I would look in the left axilla. It may not be included in, 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 in textbooks or certainly older textbooks, but certainly now we are implanting a lot more SICD. So always check the uh, left um, axillary area for any signs of device implant there. Um, those are the main things you'd be looking for in terms of chest. Yeah. And one thing which I would add in as well is that 
I always found during my practice that I would always remember to present a physical sign if I made a note of it. So if I, even if I, you know, ran my finger along the scar overlying the device, and I would always encourage you to, if you're looking for a subcutaneous ICD, actually put your hand over the left axilla. I know we're talking about palpation in a moment, but I would definitely just take a moment. If you have an overweight patient, for example, they might be difficult to see. You may not see the scar. So really important to, if you can't see anything, always just have a have a feel anyway. But now we've come, we've segued to palpation before we even got there. So that's my bit of palpation. Any other signs on palpation, Omar, which candidates should be looking out for? So um, you can... Uh often have a heave and um, the apex beat typically isn't displaced although in the late stages uh, of hcm where they develop um, burnt out phenomenon so the the hypertrophy is replaced with burnt out myocardium lv dilatation so you could get a, a displaced apex beat you might feel a heave um, or as we said earlier on in terms of a forceful in the setting of a forceful atrial contraction you may get a double impulse uh, if the patient's in sinus rhythm. Brilliant. And then moving on to auscultation. And this is probably one of the lesser known signs of, of Hokan, but they can have a murmur, can't they, Omar? Absolutely. So, you know, if there is um, uh, LV outflow tract obstruction, you can hear uh, uh, often a, a systolic murmur or an ejection systolic murmur. Um, they may have and often do have coexisting um, uh, mitral valve abnormalities, uh, typically systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve with significant mitral regurgitation. So you may also hear the murmur of mitral regurgitation, so a pan-systolic murmur, and that may be... You, so, so you could get two different murmurs heard differently in different aspects of the chest. And with the systolic murmur, you would tend to hear that radiate into the carotids. One other point which uh, might be something to consider during your examination, which I think would really make you stand out as a you know shining star among the candidates, would be an awareness. If you suspect that HCM is, is your preferred diagnosis, the murmur can change with posture. And so auscultating whilst the patient is doing the Valsalva manoeuvre may accentuate the murmur, Omar. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Um, I think examiners will be looking for that in particular because that shows you have an idea of what you may be dealing with here in terms of what the underlying uh, condition is. So I, I think that's a, a really key point you've made there, Sam. Fantastic. And then moving on to the, that's pretty much all you should need to do in auscultation. Obviously, you're going to proceed through and systematically listen to all of the uh, all of the valvular areas and make sure you've got your signs clear in your head before you move on to finish the station. And usually, you conclude the station in the usual way. Uh, listen to the lung bases, listening for bibasal crepitation, suggestive of uh, any uh, heart failure or pulmonary edema and checking the legs for pedal edema. But more or less, you should wrestle through this examination relatively quickly, and they should expect you to finish well within the time. So it may mean that you have more time to present, but also means you may have more time for examiner questions as well. So we've pretty much wrapped up the examination. After the break, we're going to be talking about the presentation and the common examiner questions of these patients.
So moving on to the presentation of these patients. Once you've finished your examination, you're going to be expected to present your findings, describe the uh, the signs you found and, and why it leads you to your preferred diagnosis. Obviously, that's going to be dependent on the signs you found. And obviously, you're going to have to think of your differential diagnosis that you're going to tell the examiner. So Omar, what possible differential diagnoses could you, could the candidates mention uh, for for this patient with uh, a possible murmur, maybe a cardiac device as well? If there wasn't a device, uh, and depending on the clinical signs you picked up and what the patient has, for example, any cause of an ejection systolic murmur, for example, so aortic pulmonary stenosis, um, you could include their uh, congenital subaortic stenosis, which again might mimic uh, a lot of the clinical signs you see in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If there's a mitral murmur, it could be mitral valve disease. Um, but I guess the, 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 the constellation of, of clinical signs, including any signs of left ventricular hypertrophy, the pulse, the apex beat, and if there were a device there, I think the unifying diagnosis here would be HCM, especially in a young patient. But valvular disease and congenital disease should enter your uh, thinking process as you're going through the examination. Yeah, definitely. And so one other thing to mention, which is a possible mimic, would be a ventricular septal defect, which can be heard at the left lower sternal edge as well, although it's typically, in in my uh, experience, much louder than any murmur I've heard on, on a patient with uh, HCM. So the issue with a VSD as well to consider is that um, uh, the only real VSD that would be left unrepaired in a patient who's got clearly no signs of Eisenmenger or something like that would be a, a restrictive perimembranous or a muscular VSD with no significant hemodynamic effect. They tend to give quite uh, loud murmurs, actually, but you may not see any of the other signs uh, of LVH, which you would in HCM. So... That's an important distinction to make if you do think about um, a possible VSD. Yeah, brilliant. And so in the usual way, you're going to finish your presentation listing your preferred diagnosis of uh, HCM or depending on whatever you found. And then you're going to go right into your investigations and management. And so, Omar, we often start off with the, the simplest things to do with our investigations. So, if we move from the bedside investigations right the way through to the specialist investigations, what other things are candidates should be mentioning to their examiners? So I think it, HCM is is one of those conditions where even the basic uh, you know examinations, uh, such as a, a twelve lead ECG, for example, that that might be your starting point. So uh, a twelve lead ECG, you want to note the rhythm. Is it sinus? Are they in AF? Uh, both are equally possible in a patient with HCM. Uh, we start with the P waves. If they've got large P waves, uh, that may suggest that they've got atrial enlargement, which a lot of these patients do have. Um, then the QRS, it could be broad, it could be narrow. Um, in, in HCM, again, depending if there's any underlying fibrosis seen. And you may see, and you do see typically, um, voltage criteria for LVH. Uh, with associated repolarization abnormalities. In the apical form of HCM, you see a very typical uh, ECG, a very deep uh, T-wave inversion in the lateral leads in particular. Um, so, so those are the typical findings um, in a patient with HCM. And if it's somebody with 
very mild hypertrophy, which I doubt you would get in an exam situation, um, they may not have any of those signs. And then the next thing is usually, uh, we usually talk about blood tests, but actually, unless you're doing genetic testing, which I wouldn't class as a routine blood test, there's probably very little to find in terms of uh, important things on the routine blood tests. No, and, and, and maybe if you want extra points, uh, you can see these patients with a chronically elevated low-grade troponin um, and or BMP if there uh, is any evidence of, 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 of cardiac strain. So you could mention those two. They could be elevated in patients with HCM. And then moving on to imaging, um, a chest X-ray may be quite non-specific. It may show cardiomegaly could also be normal. Um, but an echo is going to be the, the pertinent investigation, isn't it, Omar? That's right. So the, the chest X-ray is very non-specific, but it's, again, even so, mention it um, for completeness in a, in a PACES exam. The echocardiogram is, is the initial go-to um, uh, imaging uh, modality of choice. Uh, what you would expect to find is Left, left ventricular hypertrophy, typically in the septum and asymmetric. But as I mentioned earlier on, it can be in the apex exclusively or in mid-ventricle, or it can be concentric. In addition, you may see systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve with associated mitral regurgitation, left atrial dilatation, and obstruction of the LV outflow tract, um, either at rest or with provocation, such as Valsalva, and one thing we perhaps didn't mention at the start, but I'll mention at this stage, is um, patients can often have uh, right ventricular hypertrophy in association with left ventricular hypertrophy. So it's not exclusively the left ventricle. Brilliant. And uh, I guess the other thing which the uh, echo would show as well is uh, the, the valvular disease. And, and you can also measure the uh, gradient itself on, on the echo as well. Yeah, so um, the gradient's vital um, in terms of knowing what it is, both at rest and with provocation and even on exercise. Um, so uh, in terms of risk stratification, which we'll talk about after the diagnostic tests, uh, an exercise echo is a very, very useful tool. But yeah, defining the gradient across the LV outflow tract is uh, extremely important, A, because you need to know what it's like at baseline, and that will determine how you manage these patients, but B, you would repeat that at various stages to assess the response to treatment. And then going even further, uh, Omar, we come into you know an area of your subspecialty, which is uh, cardiac MRI scanning. So what benefits can be, can be uh, gained from uh, patients having an MRI scan? So Many patients don't have adequate echo windows. The apex is particularly not well seen on echo, especially with apical HCM. And it's well recognized and well described in the literature that a number of cases or a proportion of cases of apical HCM are just not diagnosed on, on, um, uh, on echo uh, adequately. So A, to confirm the diagnosis. Um, B, to be able to accurately quantify the degree of hypertrophy, the degree of obstruction, any associated valvular abnormalities, uh, and also um, to assess for, for scar or, or, or fibrosis in, in, in the hypertrophied segments. And that's becoming more and more important in terms of risk stratification of these patients because scar is a focus um, or a substrate for ventricular arrhythmias, which is 
often the cause of cardiac events in these patients. Yeah, absolutely. And whilst we talked about routine blood tests not being of a huge amount of use, uh, there are blood tests or uh, for genetic testing for these patients. Um, in my experience, often there's a cardiomyopathy panel which is sent off as a more general screening tool, which will include all of the relevant genes uh, pertinent to HCM. Um, But as I said at the start, um, there's a couple of specific genes which would be important to mention, Omar. So so what genes do you think would be most important to mention to the the examiners? So the two you mentioned, which is um, myosin heavy chain, MYH7, and MYBPC3, myosin binding protein C, um, they, between them, account for about two-thirds to three-quarters of cases of genetic, of gene-positive HCM. So those would be the two to remember. If you, again, if you, if you want to, you can mention other genes that code for all of the troponins, for example. But I, w- I don't think you would be expect. Most examiners probably wouldn't be aware of anything beyond that anyway. Yeah, good, very good point. Probably after that, it would be sensible to move on to the management of these patients. And there's many different cornerstones of management, but I thought we'd start off talking about the MDT approach uh, for these patients, Omar. So obviously, they're under the care of a cardiologist with an interest in inherited cardiac conditions. But what other clinical teams are important for these patients to be known to? So the MDT is is vitally important uh, in these patients, as it is in in all patients with ICCs now is that we are we recognise that these are specialist niche conditions that require often bespoke individualised therapy and, and 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 need people on board in the management of these conditions who are who are familiar with it. So typically, we with our MDTs, we have our colleagues from clinical genetics. We have clinical scientists on board from genetics. We have imaging cardiologists. We have. Uh, heart rhythm uh, cardiologists and we have cardiologists including interventional cardiologists who if, if we're for example might be considering septal reduction therapy or, or alcohol septal ablation we have cardiac surgeons who are familiar in the management of mitral valve disease or septal myectomy in these patients so um, a plethora of individuals specialist nurses of course who uh, and genetic counselors uh, where, where, where that uh, becomes appropriate yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things which is obviously important in in the cases which have an autosomal dominantly inherited uh, genotype, the patients will have a 50% chance of passing it on to any uh, any offspring. In those patients, do you tend to routinely screen the family members of those uh, genotype positive patients? So I think anyone with a clinical diagnosis of HCM, with or without a family history, if it's a confirmed sarcomeric HCM, if you like, if, if we've re- excluded all phenocopies and other etiologies, then we would recommend family screening anyway, uh, and that would preclude uh, genetic testing. And if there is a family history and genetic testing's already been carried out, then we can, th- you would imagine the patient may already have undergone genetic testing, but if they haven't, they could. Or if this was um, uh, uh, the first case in a family, but we're convinced from a phenotypic point of view that this is, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then um, yes, you would genotype or you would do genetic testing on the proband, so the individual with the disease, and depending on what the test results came back as, you could then offer either genetic or clinical screening to at least first degree relatives in that family. Brilliant. 
And then one thing which has sort of been peppered through our uh, chat is risk stratification for these patients. And the main application of this is the decision of whether or not to offer primary prevention ICDs or defibrillators. So what sort of tools are available for uh, clinicians to to help risk, risk stratify these patients? So um, there is a uh, sudden death uh, prediction tool that the ESC has. It's an online calculator. It's um, the basis of which is um, in the ESC guidelines. And that takes into account imaging um, characteristics, patient symptoms, electrophysiological findings on halter, uh, age, sex, you know, wall thickness, left atrial diameter, several different things you punch into the calculator and it gives you a five-year sudden death risk score. Um, it's not perfect. There are a number of experts in the field who question its validity or question the basis on which the tool was uh, developed. Uh, but it is what it is and it's all we have. It's imperfect, but it, 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 it's recommended by, obviously, the, the European Society of Cardiology and and we tend to use that in terms of uh, stratifying risk in patients. And uh, so that, that's the main tool that's used in clinical practice in determining primary prevention. It's a moving field. Um, obviously, uh, CMR parameters are becoming increasingly uh, relevant. And I've no doubt once, we, once there are a number of good studies uh, out there, in the literature, then uh, we may start to see those things incorporated more and more in terms of risk stratification, particularly in primary prevention. Fantastic. And now moving on to the more uh, practical elements of management in terms of things we might talk to patients in clinic about when uh, managing their condition. One of the things I found which was quite interesting was avoid, uh, advising patients to avoid dehydrating in order to maintain their blood pressure and, and their uh, LV internal dimensions. Is that something that you routinely advise your patients, Omar? It is, yes. Um, so particularly if they go into hotter climates or anything like that, if they've got existing LV outflow tract obstruction, that can most certainly get worse. And again, you need to prescribe diuretics with great caution in these patients as well for the same reason. And what advice do you normally give your patients about competitive sports? Because... I think that's the big concern from a lot of, well, clinicians and the general public. You've seen cases, high-profile uh, high cases such as Christian Eriksen or Fabrice Moamba who, who collapsed on football pitches. And so I think the concern is that, is there any danger of letting these people exercise in the usual way? Yeah, so you're right. Um, uh, these are high-profile cases. Um, Fabrice Moamba was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Sorry, I was mixing him up with Mark Vivian Foey, the city player who who died playing for Cameroon. Uh, he was confirmed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it's it's out there in the public domain. And, and this is a real deep dive now in terms of recommending sports in patients with cardiomyopathies. And, and this is a whole kind of niche area within ICC and, and sports cardiology. As a, a practicing clinician, I think the general advice has to be that light uh, mild to moderate cardiovascular exercise is acceptable, provided they don't develop symptoms with it. Any kind of um, heavy physical stress, weightlifting, anything like that is out of the question simply because it can increase outflow tract gradients. 
Um, I read interestingly uh, some time ago that in normal healthy adults, you can generate a systolic blood pressure of about 300 millimeters of mercury when you're when you're doing a heavy bench press. I mean that's unbelievable. But I can understand that. I've had bloodshot eyes on many occasions after after lifting heavy weight. So um, do you imagine that in a patient with LV outflow tract obstruction? In fact, that's one of the adverse signs when you put these patients on uh, a bike exercise or treadmill exercise is if you see a systolic drop in BP, that's a real adverse sign for these patients. And then uh, moving on to something slightly different, any specific advice about driving for these patients? So again, the DVLA guidelines are clear about this. I think um, the main issue then is about patients with defibrillators, patients who've had therapies from defibrillators, or patients who've had ventricular arrhythmias or syncopal episodes. Um, so the, these are all kind of red flags as far as um, uh, driving is concerned, uh, whether that be for a, a standard license or a group two license. And these are all things that need to be notified to the DVLA and also assessed properly uh, by a cardiologist. Yeah, absolutely. So our, as is our general rule here on the Pre-Paces podcast, what we would normally say is always check the DVLA guidelines um, because it probably isn't worth you trying to memorize every single different guideline and always just say guidelines are updated so regularly, I would just check on the DVLA website. But I think I think the take-home is there's, there's no reason they shouldn't have a normal driving license providing they have no adverse events as, as you've mentioned and then talking about medical management of these patients what sort of uh, medical treatments we've we've mentioned a bit about arrhythmia and and rate control so what are the normal drugs that you would prescribe for patients uh, omar so my first line uh, medication particularly in patients who have evidence of outflow tract obstruction is beta blockers or if they're not tolerated calcium channel antagonists uh, non-rate limiting typically Verapamil, and um, these drugs are used to uh, for their negative inotropic effects uh, to try and reduce outflow tract gradients. And in most patients, they tend to do an effective job of bringing that gradient down. Obviously, beta blockers have an additional um, value of uh, you know possibly preventing cardiac arrhythmia as well. So, beta blockers are always my first go-to drug in terms of reducing outflow tract gradients. If those are either not tolerated or fail to achieve a significant reduction in the outflow tract gradient, then uh, the next step would be a, a tablet called disapyramide, which is a sodium channel blocker. Um, and that's added in to existing therapy, again, to try and bring down uh, outflow tract gradients. And used fairly well um, uh, and, and fairly effective. They still have uh, outflow tract obstruction despite medical therapy, then really you should be referring these patients for septal reduction therapy. And there are two main treatments here. One is alcohol septal ablation, carried out only in a few centres really in the UK um, by specialist operators, and that involves putting a, a catheter into the left coronary system and uh, injecting alcohol in a controlled manner down a septal branch, uh, which supplies a particularly hypertrophy segment that's causing the obstruction, and that effectively kills the myocardium. It's almost like a controlled infarct, and that can be effective in reducing alpha tract gradients. If they're not suitable for that, 
then surgical myectomy is also an option and, again, a very effective uh, treatment in these patients. Bringing things right up to date, um, this year uh, at the ACC, there was um, some data presented um, on a drug called Mavacamten, which is showing huge promise um, in terms of reducing LV outflow tract uh, obstruction. And certainly the, the early trials uh, have shown this drug to be hugely effective in a, in, a, in a very challenging patient group otherwise. I think that drug is currently undergoing nice uh, appraisal, but has been given FDA approval. So we look forward to that um, uh, becoming available as a treat- treatment option in the near future. Fantastic. And so one thing which we touched on a little bit earlier, which I think we may have just skipped over slightly, is is the implantation of a defibrillator, which would probably go somewhere in between medical management and surgical management, as we've discussed. Um, and so I think pretty much that is everything that we had to uh, say on, on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, anything else to add, Omar? Uh, in terms of advanced treatments, patients, so... so- in terms of symptoms, which we probably should have touched on at the start, um, there's there's four contexts in which you might get symptoms. So one is symptoms due to LV flow, LV outflow tract obstruction. We've talked about typically uh, breathlessness, chest pain, syncope. Uh, then you have symptoms to do with um, uh, ischemia. You can get microvascular ischemia. Typically in HCM, you get some uh, dysplasia of the microvasculature in HCM, and that can give you microvascular angina. Uh, so they, these patients often get angina. Um, and then there are symptoms to do with arrhythmias, whether it be AF, non-sustained VT, or even VF. Uh, and then the fourth being if they go on in advanced HCM to develop heart failure, so any of the the symptoms or features of heart failure and your ther- uh, your medical management will be directed specifically to whatever any of those four or all of those four issues and you would follow standard uh, guidelines for the management of, of those conditions fantastic well i think that's pretty much all we had to cover on hcm hypertrophic cardiomyopathy so without further ado let's get started on the next part of the show, you know what time it is. It's time for Quiz the Consultant. It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultant. Welcome to Quiz the Consultant. This is our regular feature, the quiz where our bosses take on a specialist subject of their own choosing with the caveat that it can't be to do with medicine. Now, Omar, you mentioned at the top of the show, but what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? So um, I've chosen Liverpool Football Club as uh, my chosen topic. The reasons for that is, as you can tell from my accent and from my uh, bio that you introduced me with, I am a diehard Mancunian, born and bred in this city, been here all my life three degrees from the university and you know what that means when it comes to Liverpool. Now, uh, chosen Liverpool, A, I am a fanatic when it comes to football, but I've chosen Liverpool uh, for reasons you'll probably, uh, which will probably become clear at the end of the quiz. (laughs) Oh, he's keeping us in suspense. Okay, so Omar, this is how we play. There's 10 questions in total. If you can get it without the multiple choice options, you'll get two points. 
if you're str- if you're slightly struggling, you can ask for four multiple choice options and you get one point. So twenty points total up for grabs. Okay, happy? Yeah. Okay. Question number one, and we're starting off nice and easy. What is the name of Liverpool's home ground? I'll say it through gritted teeth, Anfield. Correct. For two points, you're on the board. Okay, question number two. What animal is on Liverpool's badge? Swan. Okay, you're getting your mulligan. Would you like the multiple choice options? Yes. (laughs) Okay, is it A, blackbird, B, blue tits, C, kestrel, or D, liverbird? I would say blue tit for entertainment value, but uh, we'll go with live a bird. It is the live a bird for one point. Okay, question number three. Who is Liverpool's current club captain? Jordan Henderson. Correct. For another two points. Going well so far. Question number four. Everton is Liverpool's closest rival. But what is the distance between Everton's home ground of Goodison Park and Liverpool's home ground of Anfield? I'll give you one mile either way for two points, or you can take the options for the one point. Six miles. It's not six miles. It's just one mile between the two grounds. You had to fall at some point. Question number five. Who is Liverpool's record appearance holder and I should say, with a caveat, this is in the Premier League era, so since 1992. Who is, who is their record appearance holder? I'll take the uh, choice of the MCQ. Okay, so is it A, Jamie Carragher? Is it B, Steven Gerrard? Is it C, Robbie Fowler? Or is it D, Sammy Hippier? It's uh, A or B. It's probably Carragher. I'll say A. It is Jamie Carragher. For one point, just out of interest, it's not it's not an extra question. You, can you guess how many uh, appearances he had? Not interested. <laughs> it was seven hundred and thirty-seven. What, 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 how how okay. many uh, Premier League titles did he win in those uh, seven hundred and thirty odd games? <laughs> that should have been the question. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Question number six. Who is Liverpool's record goal scorer in the Premier League era? I'll take the four. I've got a feeling it might be Robbie Fowler, but I'll take the four. Is it A, Steven Gerrard? Is it B, Robbie Fowler? C, Michael Owen? Or D, Mo Salah? I'll go with Robbie Fowler. It is Robbie Fowler for the for the points. Question number seven. In Liverpool's iconic comeback in the Champions League final against AC Milan in 2005, who scored Liverpool's equaliser to make the score 3-3 in normal time? I'm thinking it might have been Gerrard, but I'll take the choice again. Okay, was it A, Vladimir Smitser? Was it B, Zabi Alonso? Was it C, Milan Barros? Or was it D, Steven Gerrard? I'll go with Gerrard. It was... Xavi Alonso if uh, if you remember he took the penalty which was then saved and then he uh, he put in the rebound to get the uh, to get the equaliser I think Gerard scored the first goal of the three distant memory it was a long time ago <laughs> question number eight 
which goalkeeper made two catastrophic clangers in the Champions League final in 2018, where Liverpool lost 3-1 to Real Madrid? That's funny. I remember that. He had his, his name began with C, I think, or it had a C in it. Yeah, I remember watching this and it was just, it was heartbreaking to watch, but also... There's, there's been so many great moments like that as a United fan watching <laughs> Liverpool fail that there's too, they're too numerous to, 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 to recall them all like this. Um, uh, he's got a C in his name, but if you say it, I'll know it, so I'll take the floor. Okay, was it Pepe Reina? Was it Alisson? Was it Loris Karius or Jersey Dudek? Yeah, it was Karius. It was Karius for another point. They're all clowns, though, in that list you read out. Right? <laughs> Dudek was a clown. Yeah, they, but uh, anyway, <laughs> let's take the last one. Okay. Question number nine. Who is Liverpool's current record transfer fee for an arriving player? I'm going to say Van Dyke. It was Virgil van Dijk for two points. £76 million. And final question, question number 10. Uh, before the current fan favourite, Jurgen Klopp, who was the uh, Liverpool manager before Jurgen Klopp took over? Brendan Rodgers. It was Brendan Rodgers, which gives you a very respectable score of 12 points out of 20 for Quiz the Consultant. And uh, is this the bit where we find out that you're not actually a Liverpool fan? Correct. Now, I'm rather disappointed with that score because I was hoping I'd score zero and I could brag to all the people I know who are Liverpool fans that I scored zero in a quiz on Liverpool, which is, unfortunately, I knew some of the answers, you see. <laughs> I was hoping as well that you might give me some, some more kind of uh, current questions like, how many years did it take Liverpool to win a Premier League <laughs> and be gifted it? with a, a, a national, an international pandemic <laughs> or um, how many goals did Liverpool score in three finals this season so I was hoping for those kind of questions but anyway I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take 12 for what it's worth and during this podcast I've probably alienated myself to many many people <laughs> um, I'm a Bournemouth fan just to say I have no I've got no allegiance to uh, to Liverpool I think they're a great football club there we go just so i don't lose all of my listeners <laughs> that brings us to the end of the show and uh we owe a huge debt of gratitude to uh consultant cardiologist dr omar asgar for giving us his expertise and knowledge looking at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy so omar thank you so much for joining us thank you sam it's been a pleasure and listeners that is the end of another show here on the pre-paces podcast don't forget to like follow subscribe leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts success stories have you recently passed give us a shout on our twitter at prepaces podcast or on the website prepacespodcast.com and if you really love the show maybe you've recently passed maybe you've learned something new maybe you just absolutely love quizzes about football clubs or other varied topics if you really want to go above and beyond support the show it's buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.